Welcome to the Fit as Podcast. Here to guide you through all things health, fitness and nutrition are your hosts, author, researcher and award-winning nutritionist Kate Llewellyn-Waters and internationally renowned personal trainer and strength and conditioning coach Jamie Sawyer. Join them as they talk us through how to become fit as Hi and welcome to episode 5 of the Fit as Podcast. Now today myself and Kate Llewellyn-Waters Hello are going to be talking you through some of the most common health and fitness myths and frequently asked questions that we get on a day-to-day basis. So static stretching prevents injuries. I hear that all the time, uh, especially for people that are doing a warm-up. You see so many people doing static stretching before exercise. However, researchers from the University of Hull concluded that static stretching actually was ineffective at reducing the incidence of uh, exercise-related injury. And it's kind of common sense when you think about it because a proper warm-up should ideally include something that raises the body temperature, something that increases blood flow. So, for example, walking on a bike, on a cross-trainer, skipping, anything like that. Very basic, very simple but it will increase your body temperature and increase blood flow. Once you've done that, the idea is to then activate the stabilizing muscles and the muscles that you're going to be using in a workout. So for example, if the workout includes squats, one of the biggest movements we can do, we'd want to activate the stabilizing muscles around the hip. We'd want to activate the glutes, the quads, the hamstrings, the abs, so on and so forth. And again, using that example of the squat, Thirdly, we'd like to mobilize the joints that are included in the squat. So your hips have to be nice and mobile to be able to produce a good quality squat. So mobilizing the joints there, mobilizing the ankle joint, again, very important. And then finally, you would potentiate and practice. So the main movements that you're performing in a workout, you'd want to perform them in perfect form, with a lightweight to potentiate the central nervous system and practice the movement so you grease that perfect groove so when you do come to lifting heavier weight, you're fully prepped. So that is a much better option than a static stretch. And do you still see people doing static stretching? All the time. And I can understand the reason for doing it if people are feeling tight in certain muscles. However, it's not optimal. But stretching after exercise is important. It can be. Again, if there is a tightness in a muscle, then it's important to loosen that off. However, if you are involved in resistance training, doing static stretching post-workout can actually increase muscle damage and therefore increase your risk of injury. So as if you're performing a squat, a deadlift, any exercise to its full range of motion, then there is no need to statically stretch afterwards. Unless, as I said, the muscles are tight, the joints are tight. For most people, I don't statically stretch them after a training session because there's no need. They're squatting to the fullest depth that they need to. The joints are nice and mobile. Actively, statically stretching a muscle will serve no purpose post-workout, again, unless there is some tight issues. So it saves loads of time then, not having to stretch, even better. Okay, so one I get all the time is, I've read that carbs are really bad. Uh, This is um, something I hear so many times per day, and I read a lot as well. And white refined carbs 
are bad. They serve no nutrient at all to us apart from giving us energy. And the complex carbs, on the other hand, are the good carbs. Now, these are your vegetables, your fruits, your whole grains, and they're packed with nutrients like B vitamins, folate, iron, magnesium, zinc, fibre, all those good nutrient-dense factors that we need. That's interesting you should say that because uh, one of the things that I've got listed down here um, that people talk to me about and I hear so often is don't eat carbs after dark if you want to lose fat. And it almost couldn't be further from the truth. A study was conducted by the Journal of Obesity. They put people on a calorie-restricted diet for six months and divided it into two groups. So they had a control group and an experimental group. Now... The control group ate carbs throughout the day, while the other group ate 80% of their carbs before bed, so after dark. Not only did the experimental group consuming the majority of their carbs at night lose significantly more weight and body fat than the control group, they also experienced better satiety and less hunger. Yeah, I can imagine that, and that'd be a good study to have a look at. And also, the complex carbs, they promote the good bacteria in our gut. So that's really important because we've spoken numerous times about gut health and how important good gut health is. And also, complex carbs can reduce the risk of type 2 diabetes and also heart disease. So there's plenty of reasons to eat complex carbs, but obviously avoid the white refined carbs. So your white flour, um, your white pasta, white rice, um, chocolate cakes everything with refined carbs which really serves no purposes to our health it just gives us that energy but obviously we've just spoken about the insulin spike you have a dip then so you're going to go up and down up and down and you want to maintain healthy blood sugar levels which you can do with the complex carbs sure. so that's when i get asked a lot yeah, and yeah. i think it's important to clear up well there's so, so much stigma attached to carbs isn't there in in the 80s it was fat and now it's, it's, uh, it's carbs. Completely. And it's just about getting the right carbs, the ones that are packed with nutrients like the iron, like the magnesium, the folate, all those important micronutrients that we need on a daily basis. I've also heard uh, many, many times going on macronutrients, Eating fats will make you fat. That's my next one, actually. <laughs> go for yes. it, go for it. Okay, so I'm confused about fat. Should I be reducing fat in my diet? You should be reducing saturated fat and trans fat. So that's the bad fats that's found in your chocolate, your cakes, your pastries, etc. But saturated fat, you should be keeping to 10% or less of your daily energy intake. So that's an important one to acknowledge, but you need to make sure you're consuming plenty of monounsaturated fats. So that's our healthy olives, olive oil, avocados. So foods like that, which are good for your heart health. So monounsaturated fats, Keep to about 20 to 30% of your daily energy intake, but reduce those saturated fats and those trans fats. Yeah, and I would echo that exactly. You, you actually need fat in your diet to burn fat. It's so important to have a healthy hormone level and hormone production and healthy fats in your diet help create those healthy hormones. Completely, really important. However, if you do eat a surplus of fat in your diet, then be it good fats or not, you're still going to put weight on. So I can see why people would get misled with thinking eating fat will make you fat. Not necessarily the case. Overeating fat will make you fat. Overeating carbohydrates will make you fat. Overeating protein will make you fat. 
overeating chicken and broccoli will make you fat. It's just back to, as we've mentioned many times, is that caloric surplus. That's what makes you fat. Totally. And it needs to be the balance. So you need to be burning more than you're taking in. It is quite as simple as that. I'm sure that's what you tell your clients all the time. All the time. You can be having the perfect diet, but again, if it is too energy dense, you're not going to lose that fat or that weight. And also, some people can't metabolise fats as well as others. So if you carry the AA genotype and the FTO gene, for example, you can't metabolise fats as well as somebody with a TT genotype. So that's quite important as well. And you can get your DNA tested, um, we've spoken about before, and that can be quite helpful as well. So you can find more information out on my website about that. Okay, another one. Tell me another one you get asked all the time. This seems to be more common in figure competitors, bodybuilders, that fasted cardio increases fat loss. Now, when you look at the data, it does show how during cardio in a fasted state, your body is predominantly burning more fat as a fuel than carbohydrate. However, as the day goes on, your natural amount of fat burning is decreased. So by the end of the day, the amount of fat that you've burned in a 24-hour period, which is really what you should be looking at, will equate to the same anyway. As long as you're in that calorie deficit, it doesn't really make any difference over a 24-hour period whether the cardio is fasted or not. Because if it's not, then throughout the day, your fat burning is going to be higher. It's just It just so happens that during fasted cardio you predominantly burn more fat, yet the fat burning after that slows down in comparison to fed cardio, where your balance of carbohydrate and fat burning is very similar. But then for the rest of the day, fat burning is going to be slightly higher in comparison to the fasted cardio day. And what do you do? Do you do fasted cardio or fed cardio? Well, this is where it comes down to personalization. I feel much more comfortable doing cardio fasted. It just suits me. It suits the time of day that I want to train and do my cardio. I don't really want to have a meal and then be sprinting or rowing or what have you. So I would always prefer to do my cardio fasted. But that's not to say anyone that I work with would have to do that. It just suits me. It's down to that personalization, as we've said many, many times. Completely. And this leads me on to my next one, which is I must eat breakfast every morning. (laughs) You don't. It's up to you, all about personalization. Some people work a lot better eating breakfast and need it as soon as they get up and they feel lightheaded without it. Other people, like you and I, we're quite happy, time-restricted feeding, not having to have breakfast, and that works better for us. It increases cognitive function, we've discussed. And we feel generally better, more energy. I feel so much better by not having breakfast. I feel sluggish if I have breakfast. Yeah, and I remember you said it helps your verbal dexterity. Yep, yep, hugely. Fasting. That's interesting, isn't it? Because most people think, no, you get foggy-headed, cognitive function, you know, is affected if you're not eating straight away because you need that energy to the brain. But again, that's a myth. Yeah, and and we are busting myths right now. Very true. One that I get a lot, and it's an old-school one, and it's generally people that are looking into the fitness industry from the outside perhaps thinking about starting a training regime and it's so common and it's the the phrase of all that muscle will turn into fat now you cannot turn muscle 
into fat or fat into muscle. It's like saying, I'm going to turn my foot into my hand. It just doesn't happen. It, it just cannot work. They're two completely different substances. So no, all that muscle will not turn into fat when you stop training. So say take a figure competitor when they're out of season or off season, what happens to that muscle? If they continue training, they're not going to lose their muscle, which brings me on to another point, how people sometimes think that you'll start losing muscle mass and strength after just a week of inactivity. But that's not the case. If you are a beginner and you start to take time off pretty quickly in that beginning phase, then yeah, you will eradicate your gains. However, if you exercise regularly several times a week for several months, like a, a competitor would do, it takes a lot longer than a week for you to lose your strength and lose your gains. In a study published in the Archives of Physical Medicine and Rehabilitation, they quoted strength performance in general is maintained for up to four weeks of inactivity. So when it comes to someone like a figure competitor, I would imagine the majority of that demographic would still continue training. In theory, their calorie content of their diet would go up. And if they had dieted properly, that shouldn't be too much of an issue. I would hazard a guess that about 90% of them don't diet properly. So their bodies in that storage mode, storing energy because they've been on such a calorie deficit, that they are primed for storing fat the second they go above their now lower maintenance calorie levels. So their muscles aren't turning into fat. They are just gaining more fat because they've dieted so low. Their resting metabolic rate has, has lowered quite considerably. They've gone back to what they believe was their maintenance level of calories, which is now actually a surplus because their resting metabolic rate has dropped so much. And the body is primed for storing fat because it's been so energy restricted for such a long time that any excess energy it can get hold of, it will store it. It's almost like a three-pronged defense system when people diet so extreme, where the body primes itself for fat storage, for energy storage, because the body always wants to fight for equilibrium. So it, it can even create more fat cells to say, right, when we do have an energy surplus, let's store it, let's put it in these new fat cells, because if we go back into a, a deficit like this again, we want to be able to maintain uh, an equilibrium. We, we want to be able to maintain a balance. So the body will hold on to, to as much energy fat as possible. And that's like our ancestors. We would have needed that, to, obviously, to survive. So, Well, yeah, it's, it's like a survival mode. And talking about survival modes, one thing I get asked a lot about intermittent fasting, will I go into starvation mode? Um, no, you won't. Short-term fasting, intermittent fasting, no, you won't. Long-term fasting and chronic calorie-restricted diet, potentially. But um, if you're doing short-term fasting and intermittent fasting, then no, not at all. So that's another myth yeah, yeah. I get asked a lot. Yeah, I, I agree. I think I think the term starvation mode does have to have some context applied to it with most people. I don't think the understanding of it is is as common knowledge as it should be. In my mind, it's more of a defense mechanism against calorie deficit or a low energy intake. Looking at the next one I've been asked recently, I read that veganism is what we should all be doing. 
And we've talked about this privately before, veganism and your thoughts on yep. it, Jamie, and yep. training, etc. And I, I've written several articles on this, and it seems to be a very fashionable diet at the moment. But I think we discussed one study about veganism may actually increase your risk of stroke. Where it lowers heart disease risk, it can actually increase stroke. And it was quite a robust study, am I right? Yeah, it was a really robust study. It was actually published in the British Medical Journal. It looked at 48,000 people for up to 18 years. So that's a huge sample size. So I think it's important that if you're going to go and try and be a vegan, that you need to have a really well-planned diet. You need to make sure you're having all the B vitamins, iron, omega-3s and b12 for example can only be found in animal foods so you can need to supplement with that to make sure you're getting the b12 a folate again very important obviously for the nervous system as well so getting that rounded well-planned diet most people can't get that well-planned diet busy lives and eating on the go it's very hard to get that balanced protein complete proteins together so that's something people, if they're going to consider going down the vegan route, you need to be really well prepared and well planned and make sure you're getting all your micronutrients and macronutrients because often people rely on the carbohydrates that do often have the folic acid and folate enriched foods, but they can also be high in saturated fat, refined sugar. So you need to read the labels as well if you're going to be a vegan. I think when it comes to veganism, if you want to follow the vegan path because of ethical reasons because of environmental reasons then you know more power to i think that's great i i think where we're often misled about veganism is that it is the healthiest option for us out there and this robust study is proof that perhaps it's not as healthy as mainstream media like to portray it that's not saying that you shouldn't do it Personally, I don't agree with it, but if people follow that route because of their ethics and, and because of their the, the care for the environment, then more power to you, and I, I'm, I'm all for that. And I think one thing as well, when you're vegan, you don't eat the fatty fish, and we've spoken about how important omega-3s are for depression and preventing depression, anxiety, and brain health. So you're actually putting yourself at risk, if you're not getting those omega-3s as well, of depression and anxiety. So you should potentially supplement with that as well mm. if you're going to go down the vegan route. It, it does take a lot of planning and, and organising, doesn't it, if you want to do it properly? And, and get all your nutrients. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, it does. So I would say if you're going to do it, do it properly. Yeah. And if you are new to the nutrition world, get some help. So speak to a dietitian, nutritionist, nutritional therapist, somebody that can help you implement those changes. But you just mentioned balance, and that's it. You want a balanced diet, rich in all the nutrients we speak about yeah. on this podcast. Uh, so you're not putting yourself at risk of disease, which is important. I think moderation and balance is something that gets ignored so often and everything comes back to balance. If you're not balanced, then you're, you, you're generally taking an extreme measure. And as we've talked about before, extreme measures just don't last. There is no consistency with extreme measures because they are extreme. And one balanced diet is the Mediterranean. And I got asked a lot about Mediterranean diet. Why is it the best? And simply there's been more robust studies with bigger sample sizes over longer duration that's why it's one of the most evidence-based diets along with low carb and low fat so the mediterranean diet is very popular it's very balanced and 
that's important yeah. in the balance. Yeah. It okay. has, you know, your good protein sources. It has plenty of fruit and veg. A glass of red wine is allowed. Exercise every day. Mm. So it's the most balanced diet out there. And it doesn't take a lot of planning or organising to eat in that way. And there's no special food. You can get tomatoes, you can get all those vegetables at a decent price as well. So it's not an expensive diet to follow. Or you could grow them yourself. Yes, they're, they're, very they're, true. They're, they're easy to grow. And you're not going down the processed food routes like veganism. Sometimes you have to rely on the processed foods. So that's important as well because you want the natural foods as possible in their natural form. Another myth that I get asked a lot is... Will doing crunches and sit-ups give me a six-pack? And yes, doing abdominal exercises will increase the strength of your six-pack muscles, your rectus abdominis. However, you will not see those muscles if there is a layer of fat over your six-pack. And there's a saying that that your abs are made in the kitchen. And to a point, it's true. If you are in a calorie surplus, then you're not going to lose fat and that layer of fat will hide the six-pack that you've got underneath. And everybody's got a six-pack. Anatomically, everybody has one. It's just everybody has a different amount of fat covering their abs. Some people will naturally have lower levels of abdominal fat because they may store fat in other parts of their body, whereas some people generally can store a lot of fat around their middle, therefore you're not going to see their six-pack. So for you to see a six-pack, you could be doing as many crunches as you like, but if that layer of fat is still there, you're never going to see them. You have to go into a calorie deficit and you have to burn fat from your whole body. You can't spot reduce. You can't do thousands of sit-ups and go, this is burning fat on my abs. You will lose fat throughout your whole body. And from my experience, it generally starts from the top down. You can always see someone that's in a calorie deficit or is working for fat loss because their face starts to go thin first, then their neck, their chest and shoulders, and at the very last, it seems to be around their belly button. So that's always the last thing to go, which is really frustrating for people that store fat in that area. But crunches won't give you a six-pack. Dieting, burning the fat off your body will. And which stomach exercise do you think is best for getting a six-pack once you've lowered your body fat would you say plank i i would controversially say things like overhead pressing things like deadlifting things like squatting to a degree where the rectus abdominis are being used for huge bracing that will increase their strength and you're engaging your whole core there as well. Absolutely everything. So from your obliques to your six-pack, your rectus abdominis, your rectus spinae muscles, your pelvic floor muscles, you're using all of those. Now I'm debating which one I should try. I'm going to do well, the, a multitude of different ones. The thing of it is, 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 in my point of view, function is the important thing. And... Your rectus abdominis is there for spine flexion. That's the movement that it produces. But its main role is stabilization, is anti-extension. So things like planks, yes, you will work your rectus abdominis. You'll probably work your hip flexors more. The effect that gravity has on your hips during a plank means your hips want to sag and rotate downwards. So the hip flexors contract isometrically so with no movement to keep them in that position 
And it's really important that you mentioned the functionality of exercises and make it functional for your everyday life so you can carry on um, into your elderly years, sure. strength and able to get up from your chair. And Absolutely. The, the movements that we do every day, if we can strengthen those movements up in the gym or doing certain exercises, then it's going to make day-to-day living much easier. Carrying a shopping bag, a heavy shopping bag in one hand is a task that we all do on a week-to-week, day-to-day basis. But there's an exercise for that. I will happily load up a client with a heavy dumbbell in one hand and get them to walk with perfect posture down the track and back again. So what the body wants to do is the body wants to laterally flex the spine. It wants to side bend. But the musculature of the core is fighting against that to keep your posture perfect. So you're strengthening a functional movement of walking with being loaded on one side, but maintaining a perfect neutral spine. And things like that are really, really important. It's great rehab for anyone that ever has a back issue. Things like that are a great tool for improving your core stability and helping you recover and rehab from back injury. So that brings us to the end of this episode. If you'd like to find more about the nutrition-related issues we've been talking about today, please do head over to my website, www.ktlwaters.com, or for more on the fitness side of things, head to Jamie's website, www.jamiesawyer.co.uk. And please do follow us on social media at FitHouse Podcast. So hopefully Kate and I have busted a few health and fitness myths for you so you can stay fit as f***. Thanks for listening. Bye for now.